You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, Pastor Josh Brady continues chapter 7 of Romans as we continue to work through this rich book. In this passage, the Apostle Paul continues to teach about the nature of the law and sin. As we listen, it's our prayer that God will teach us and show us more about himself through his word today. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 7? Romans 7 will be our text today. Our aim is to finish out this chapter, and there is a lot of chapter left to get through in our short time today. Uh, If you were here last week, you you know that this, this section, particularly of this entire letter, is really important, important for the life of the believer then, and, and I would say vastly important for the life of the believer. Now, there was a lot going on uh, last week. When, when we started walking through, we, we, we spent, I think, like 40 minutes in six verses, and now somehow we're going to make it through, uh, uh, I don't know, 16, 17 verses today uh, as we, we, we sort this out. But there was a tension that developed, and there's a tension that develops throughout this entire book, and, and I think it's right because it's a tension that lives in our life. And, and here's the tension. We know that God has called us to be free from sin. We, we know that through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells inside every believer, we are no longer shackled to what we used to be, and we are now free from that old life. So when we come to worship services and we hear songs that are anthematic like the one we just sang or, or you'll hear preachers preach and on talking about the freedom from sin and, and talking about the, the, the freedom there is in Christ, you would say, amen, glory, that's good, hey, yeah. But then if we're honest, there's still a tension that lives deep inside of every soul here and every soul watching. I love the Lord. I love his word. I want to do right by what he has called me to do, yet there is something else inside of me that I feel, and and I try to keep it at bay, and I try to do the best that I can, but it's the strange feeling of of always trying to, to go where it shouldn't go, to do what it shouldn't do, to love the things that we know it ought not love. There's the tension that lives there. And so there, there's a couple of options that we can take, and, and one of them is, is really damaging, I believe. And here's the first option, and sadly, I think a lot of times we, we take this option, and, and whether we take it all the time or sometime, the damage is still going to be done. Here's option number one. When we feel that, that tension, that tension of, I know I love the Lord, I know I love His Word, I know I want to do right by Him, yet there is something inside of me that is warring inside It is pulling me in directions I should not go and to love things I should not love. Option one is to act like that's not there. To act like you have no sinful desire left in you and that you are completely fixed from the inside out and you walk around acting like you are free completely. Hear me out. Theologically, we are free Before the Father, we are justified completely because of what Christ the Son has done. But as sometimes we want to hide and act like those feelings aren't there. And when we hide and we act like we're better than we are, it's exhausting. And then option number two, I think this is the better option, and I'm sure there's nuances in between the two, but here's the other option, where we are open and honest with the Father and we are open and honest with the people that we do life with. 
For it is in that we are going to find hope and we are going to find healing. And this is where we find ourselves today. Quick, quick look back over, over chapter 6. We, we almost feel like the Apostle Paul is, is calling us to understand a few things. One, that we are free from sin. Yes, we are. And that we are, uh, beginning of chapter 7, free from the law. It almost feels like Paul is saying that the law of God is not good. And it's not helpful. And maybe if if we listen in a strange way, we can almost begin to believe that Paul is saying that the law of God is is evil in some way. Like if you went back to to chapter 7, verse 5, and he says that the law, the law, God's law aroused our sinful passion and led us to produce works of the flesh, which leads to death. So is the law a bad thing? Because Paul says we're freed from it. Paul says it's the law that has stirred up these passions inside of us. So is the law bad? And that's where we pick up today in verse 7. So Romans chapter 7, verse 7 and following. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So is the law sinful? Paul says, absolutely not. God's law is great grace to the believer and to the non-believer. We wouldn't know what sin was if it had not told us. Now, there'd be some who would argue here, well, does that mean that we are better off not knowing the law? Because maybe, maybe before we knew the law, we were, we were ignorant and we were blissful in our ignorance. Were we not held accountable until the law was given? No, no, because that, that is the, the middle portion of, of chapters 3 and 4 of Romans. What, what Paul is saying there is even before the law was given, the effect of the law was felt. The wages of sin is death. So even before Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai and then gives it to the people, death had been in humanity. Therefore, sin was running its course. They just didn't know what was causing it. So Paul says, no, the the law is not evil. The law did not cause you to die. The law is good and right. It is great grace to you. But then Paul uses a real life example to him to better explain this truth. And I think we should listen very carefully because it's a really important lesson for us and maybe a way that we didn't expect. He says this. He said that he would not have known what it was to covet If the law had told him, thou shalt not covet. Paul then explains that that this law is helpful for everyone. To the completely clueless person, it gives everything that they need to know as to the standard to which God has set before them. And to the seasoned religious person, it cuts to the heart and exposes the deepest and most long-standing sinful desires. For Paul, that was covetousness. It is in this moment, a lot of times we talk about the whole of the law is explained in two ways. Love God and love people, you get everything there is in the law. Paul would say it from a different angle. Everything in the law boils down to you should not covet. You say, well, that sounds strange. I like love God, love people better. It's easier. It looks better on a mug. What are we doing here with do not covet? 
Because here's the idea of coveting. It is not being satisfied with what you have and wanting what somebody else has. Look at the Ten Commandments in view of that. What's the first commandment? We have one God. And then the rest of the middle, the, 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 the first portion of the Ten Commandments is this idea of don't go after other gods. Don't create gods for yourself. Don't covet what you don't have. And then, then it gets to this idea of, of how we are to, to deal with people. So the first part of the Ten Commandments is, is vertical. The second part is horizontal and how we deal with our brothers and sisters that are around us. Why would we do the things it tells us not to do? Because there is something in our heart that desires what they have, and we're going to do whatever it takes to get it. So Paul says, at his heart, in his deeply religious heart, the core of it is he covets what others have. He is not satisfied with what God has given to him. So the law wasn't sinful. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, commandment being the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So, so we could stop in verse 9, and that, that would be one of those proof texts for, for some people to say, see, you should have never told me about Jesus, and I would have been just fine. Now that I know, I'm held accountable. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I was blissfully ignorant in my walk. I didn't have conviction in my life because I didn't know to have it. Well, what Paul would say earlier in this letter is, regardless if you have conviction or not, regardless if you feel guilt or shame for what you do or not, your life is going to end in death because of your sinfulness. But he said, look, even, even before all the law was given, I felt fine. There was no conviction in my life, but when the law came, sin came alive in me. Sin came alive to me. I realized what I was doing. I realized who I was, and therefore death. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. All right, so in God's grace of giving the law, sin took an opportunity to do what sin always does. It distorts what is good and wrecks the intended purpose. That is a great understanding of what sin does and will continue to do in your life. It distorts what is good and wrecks the intended purpose. What should have brought life in the law instead brought death. So just so everyone's clear, verse 12. So the law is holy. This, this is compared to the question earlier, is the law evil? Is the law bad? Should we, should we just not only do away with the law, but run from it as far and fast as we can? Paul says, no, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy. And it's righteous. And it's good. It was and is the sin in us that distorts what is good. Sin's aim is always to distort, to deceive. Here are three ways. John 10, 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and what's the last one? To destroy. That's what sin's going to do. That's what the enemy intends to do as he is wrecking your life. Paul goes on to clarify. Look at verse 13. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? So, so did the law bring death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So Paul is answering another surely asked question here. With all that being said, sin taking its opportunity through the law to deceive, to stir up our sinful passions. Does the law now bring death? Absolutely not, Paul says. God's law is not sinful and it is not bad. It was just never meant to save. God's law is not sinful and it is not bad. It was just never meant to save. It was never meant to be a do-it-yourself, self-help manual. But that's exactly what sin wants you to believe. This is where religion kills. A lot of times the enemy is going to know who you are and how you are and attack you accordingly. If you are not a religious person, It should not seem strange to you that he would not use religion to try to steal, kill, and destroy. But if you are a religious person, you should be aware that everything is fair game to him. And so here, for the people who who were given the law and who understood the law on some level, there was this struggle that came inside of them because it seems the more they studied, the more they realized that they were sinful and they couldn't do it. And so instead of saying, God, help me, I need to be saved from this, they said, I can try harder and do better. And that left them even more broken. You know, that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. A lot of times for us, we still fall in that same place, don't we? We still fall in the same idea as all I need is the information and I can sort it out from here. God, you tell me don't do that, I promise you I'm not going to do that. Some of y'all were proud last week when I said, hey, don't look up there. You're like, I ain't looking, preacher. Y'all were proud, but y'all walked out and you're like, I wonder what was up there. Because it doesn't matter if you have resolve in the moment. If you have stick-to-itiveness in this season. At some point, your willpower goes away. And that was, that was the lie that the enemy had begun to weave in this law. That it was somehow a save-yourself, do-it-yourself manual, and it's not. In our pride, in our self-centeredness, we believe this to be true. This idea is we say, God, thanks. Thanks for the law. Thanks, thanks, thanks for thinking that I'm special. Thanks for, thanks for thinking that I'm worthy to have your law. That's great. I give you glory for that. Now watch what I can do with it. I got it from here. You might be here today thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Here, here would be the question I would ask you, okay? So, so here's a scenario I think that's more real time for us. Religious person person who understands the difference between right and wrong, you understand God's law, and you understand that there are things that God wants you to do, and maybe things that you know that God is calling you away from, right? But there's still that tension inside of you that says, okay, I love the Lord, but I'm strangely still drawn to this. I I know what is right, but strangely, I'm still desiring what's wrong. Let's say you get caught up in sin. Let's let's say you, you, you do a sinful act, or you get caught in a sinful action, 
and conviction comes upon you, and, and the Spirit of God is telling you very clearly, this is not the way. This is not to be what is the life of the believer. There's two options here. One would be the, the incredibly religious option, self-help, do-it-yourself idea of dealing with sin. It is this, God, I am so broken over my mistake. I can't believe that I did that again. I can't believe I went to that old place again. I can't believe that I got duped into the new place again. But God, I tell you what, if you would just forgive me, like all the stuff that I've done up until this moment, that I promise you, God, if you forgive that, I promise I'll never do it again. Has anybody ever prayed that? How'd it go for you? Because essentially what you're saying is, God, I just need your help to clean up the mess, but I still got the mess maker inside of me. Because I think if I follow the law and I do the checklist and I, and I put all the fail safes in place, all the passwords, all the deterrence, all the things to keep me away from whatever it is that is making me struggle, then somehow I can will myself out of this sinful state. Look, if I could just encourage you to understand this, your actions are just symptoms of what's broken inside of you. So even if you were able to stop doing whatever that thing was, something else pops up. In my mind, it's a lot like those flex seal tape commercials. I don't even know why. This, this is not even in the notes. This is free for you. <laughs> Our life is broken. It's poor. And I was like, oh, wait, there's more. And then you slap the tape right on it. And more than likely, it works for the camera in three seconds. But I can just imagine when the camera shuts off, it <laughs> blows up again. Some of you are like, no, I like flex tape. Don't talk about that. Okay, whatever. The idea is you can't fix you. But the enemy wants you to think you can. Because if he can make you think religion saves, he's got you. If he can make you believe that trying harder to do better is enough, then you are already sunk. So what Paul is doing is he's building this case to help you understand the law was never meant to save. It was, it was never meant to be a self-help manual. The law was meant to be something else entirely. It is beautiful, it's right, and it's holy, and it's of God, and it's good, and we should see it as that, but it's never meant to be a savior. It is insufficient to save you. So is the law still useful for the Christ follower? Paul is pretty adamant that we've been set free from the law. Why would we still consider it? Great question. Look at what Paul says next, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. All right, so throughout the Bible, there are some passages that cause great tension and trying to understand their meaning and apply their truth to our life. Church family, this is one of those sections. Verses 14 through 23 have caused tension from the day that they were written to the day that they are still read now. Here's why. Romans 6, Paul says very clearly and passionately that in Christ we are dead to sin. So there's, there's no nuance in chapter 6. Paul asks the question in Romans 6 verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Implying is you, you shouldn't. Then, then later on in Romans chapter 6 verse 11, Paul says this, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
And this was kind of that moment we talked about in chapter 6 where we, we put that stake in the ground, and this is, this is what we believe ourselves to be. And so now in chapter 7, it seems like Paul is backtracking a bit and saying that somehow a Christ follower and sinfulness can coexist. But church, let me be clear, that is not what he is saying. That cannot happen. One cannot love Christ and love self at the same time. Paul isn't showing us his excuse for sin. He is giving us a glimpse into the war that's going on inside his heart in the heart of every believer. I'm thankful for chapter 7. I'm thankful that he is honest and the Bible is honest with us. But please make no mistake, chapter 7 is not a freedom to say, well, this is just who I am and this is just the way it's going to be, so I guess it's just going to sort out in the end. Chapter 6 is still real. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. But here's the glimpse of the war. Here's the glimpse of what's going on inside your heart, whether you want to go with option one or two that we talked about in the beginning, whether you want to act like it's not there or you want to bear your soul to everybody around you or anywhere in between those two options. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Is that anybody? Verse 16 and following. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So again, that, that may say, no, no, Josh, you just said that we, we aren't resolved to this. And it sounds like Paul is resolved to this at the, end of chapter, uh, at the end of verse 18. That is not what he's saying. What he is saying is, in our own strength, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Verses 19 and 20. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells in me. Again, Paul is not giving us an excuse for our sin, but helping us to better understand our dependence upon Christ for everything. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. Every time. Every time I want to do right, sin is right there. And we get verse 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Members being body. So Paul could have, could have written these verses a bit shorter and says, we are all a mess and it's complicated. I don't know if you've ever thought about the state of your Christian being. I'm thankful for kind of those heady passages more towards the, the middle of where we've already been. This idea of, you, you didn't like the words when we used them the first time, this idea of propitiation. 
An expiation. You're like, no, use different words. The idea of us being saved, not by what we've done, but by what Christ has done. And us being saved for an eternity and nothing we can do to change that. That's good news. That deals with the finality of who we are. There's nothing that we did to get saved. There's nothing that we can do to lose our salvation. As far as the work that goes to be saved. But what about the in-between? What about the messy middle? That's where we find ourselves living every day, is it not? And we long for the day when we get to go home and we get to be with God forever. And we see at the end of, of Revelation when, when God is telling John, when, when, when God has given this revelation to him, and he said, look, there's a day coming when there's no more sin, sickness, or death, and I'm going to wipe away every tear from every eye. And we long for that day, but we live in this day. So what do we do? What do we do with the mess that we are and the mess that we are in? Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In my heart, I love God and I love his word. But I see my body raging war against that. Making me captive. Like he uses the slavery terminology over again to the law of sin that dwells in my body. All jokes aside, by the time we get to verse 23... Paul has made it clear that our situation is awful. We want to. We try hard with great resolve, and it's never enough. So what do we do? Where can we turn? So when I, I talked about there being a great um, controversy, at least in these verses, you ask this theologian, they'll say this. You ask this scholar, they'll say this. You ask this preacher, they may lead you in this direction. And so as I was talking to one of my friends who, who is a New Testament scholar and, and we were sorting out even our differences and how we view and interpret this passage, he gave great wisdom. He said, regardless of where you live on the interpretation of verses 14 through 23, we all end at verse 24 together. Because we all find ourselves wrestling with, okay, what do we do with the broken mess that we are? What do, what do we do with the tension that's inside of us? Where is our hope? I would say our culture here in Madison, we're affluent, we're educated, we're, we're motivated, we're driven. We have all the intangibles that it, that it calls for to live a good and fruitful life. That somebody would look at you and say, I have what I have because of the hard work that I put in. You cannot say that with your walk with Christ. You have what you have with him because of the work he put in. And we've got to remember that. But too often we get into the messy middle and we click back in our fleshly mode. And our fleshly mode is to try harder, to be better, to fix what we have broken. And we cannot. The more we put our hands on it, the more it falls apart. Some of you, that is your life today. And you are living in the falling apart. And you say, Josh, thank you for telling me where I am. Tell me what I do. How do I fix this mess? Verse 24, Paul says, at the end of all of this, at the, at the end of his, his pouring his heart out, he says this, what a wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can fix the thing that's broken inside of me? Who can fix the life that's falling apart before my eyes? God can through Christ period. 
Not God can through Christ with you helping. Not God can through Christ with you promising trier to try harder and to be better. It is God through Christ as you submit your entire life to him. Not just your Sunday experience. Not just your Bible study, not just your prayer time, not just your tithe, not just your offering, not just your trying to do good. But all that you are, the brokenness, the gross, everything that Paul just described. We say, Lord, it's yours. I can do nothing apart from you. So where the law, prior to the spirits indwelling, would get us in trouble because sin would distort it and make us believe that the law was given to us so we can fix ourselves. You can't. The law was given to us to point us to our great need for somebody else to fix us. The only way to fix what's broken inside of you is God through Christ. So Paul says, who, who can save this wicked wretch that I am? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. As our worship team comes back out and we get ready to move into a response time, I want you to understand that there is some responding we need to all do today and every day. Because I believe that this is the tension of the life of the believer. Please hear me, and I know you know this. This is just going to be a great reminder for you, but you need to hear it. I need to hear it. The Christian life isn't solidified when you are eight at vacation Bible school and it's over. It's a daily walk with the Lord. It's you wake up and your eyes are open. You say, Lord, even before I get out from under these warm covers, God, my life belongs to you. It is yours. That's not being resaved. You can't be resaved. Once saved, if saved, always saved. But this is our daily surrendering, reminding ourselves that he is the, the author and the perfecter of our faith, not us. Our lives belong to him, not us. That's what Paul says with great resolve. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So who is the one that can save? God through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Again, he is not resolving to say that there's going to be a duality for the rest of my life. Well, in my heart I'm going to love God, but with my body I'm going to serve me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there's a war. There's a tension. We can go all the way back to Joshua. We did it a couple of weeks ago. Who are you going to serve? Choose this day whom you were going to serve. Joshua couldn't choose it for Israel. I can't choose it for you. But you're the only one that can say, as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. So our take home today. In us, in our own strength and resolve, even with the best of intentions, we are not enough. It's one thing to hear that in a sermon. It's another thing to live that out. And many of us have the scars to prove that this is true. We are not enough. But praise be to Christ our King that he is enough. That's why the hymn writer said this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name.
That is our call today. That is our call every day. The law is not bad. You are free from it, meaning it's thought that it's going to save you. It won't. It can't. You can't keep it. That is the standard, but you can't keep it. God demands perfection. We can't give perfection. So what do we do? We throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ and we receive his perfection. In the same way that we live, you can't live your life on your own. You're a mess and it's complicated. So what do you do instead? We throw ourselves at the mercy of God through Jesus Christ and we give him all the glory for what he does. It is simple yet profound. It is the reminder throughout Romans and it's the reminder throughout scripture. So the question is today, what will you do? How will you continue to choose to live? You can live in your own strength and might and power while still loving the law, while still believing that this is good and right, but in your own strength, you, you can't do it. Or you can say today and every day, Lord, I'm yours. I need you. I need every bit of you to cover every bit of me for your glory and our good. That is the response that is before you today. I pray the Holy Spirit would allow you to choose rightly. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to see truth. And I pray, Lord, to respond accordingly. We know, we know your word tells us that we are dead to sin because of what you've done, Christ, because, because of your work on the cross. We are free from the bondage of sin. Yet the crazy thing is we still want to run back to it. We ask God for conviction. That is good. That is gracious to us. We ask you to help us to be wholly discontented in that sinful life. For a follower of yours, God cannot love holiness and love sinfulness at the same time. It cannot coexist. It's not a thing. So help us, Holy Spirit, today see where we are and to see how we ought to walk. And we ask, God, that you give us the strength to do it, for we know in ourselves we cannot. So help us, even in this response time, to bring you all glory, all honor, and all praise. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. And we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?